For many people with Lyme disease, cognitive deficits and mental health challenges are some of the most difficult symptoms to experience. These manifestations of Lyme disease are often overlooked, misunderstood, and even misdiagnosed. We hope to change that in this episode. This topic may be difficult for some of our listeners. If you or someone you know needs urgent mental health support, please call 911. For our U.S. listeners, you can call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. We will also list more resources in the show notes. Dr. Brian Fallon directs the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. His current research focuses on the neuropsychiatric aspects of Lyme disease and on clinical trials to assess treatments for patients with persistent symptoms. His research focuses on the symptoms of fatigue, slowed processing speed, and depression. And he uses a range of approaches, including vagus nerve stimulation for fatigue, transcranial direct current stimulation for brain fog, and intravenous ketamine for depression. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Fallon. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. How did you become interested in Lyme disease? Uh, I was a while back. It was in the early 90s, and it was uh, because a family member of mine uh, became sick with Lyme and quite sick with it. And um, it was a, it was difficult initially trying to get a correct diagnosis. And once we had a correct diagnosis, it was challenging uh, to sort out the treatment regimens. Uh, my family member would got a lot better with treatments, and then a couple of months later, or so a few weeks later, started to relapse. And at that time in the early 90s, the uh, experts on Lyme disease were saying that the uh, treatment was curative. So if you had symptoms that persisted or returned, <clears throat> they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, they were sympathetic, but they said it had nothing to do with Lyme disease, and uh, they really were not interested in providing uh, repeated treatment. Um, so that <clears throat> was a tr troubling situation, right? If you have a family member who's sick, and you would like them to get another course of treatment, and they were having a hard time getting it. So I learned a lot about the difficulties that Lyme patients have in, in getting diagnosed, difficulties they have in getting treatments, the um, rigidity with which some uh, physicians uh, approach people who have uncertain illness, um, especially when, when it's an evolving understanding in the medical community, but but they may not be sophisticated enough, or, or they may be quite sophisticated and think they have all the answers. So it's complex. And as a psychiatrist, uh, with a curious mind about just the situation, I was interested in <clears throat> trying to figure out how I might be able to help uh, this problem of both uncertain diagnosis, uncertain treatment, uh, as well as the problem that oftentimes patients with Lyme disease developed neuropsychiatric problems like cognitive problems and <clears throat> depression, and sometimes severe anxiety. Um, and so from a psychiatrist's point of view, especially uh, a psychiatrist who was being trained as a researcher, so that was early in my research career at Columbia, um, I thought maybe I could apply some of the research tools that I've been learning in terms of uh, conducting surveys and in terms of 
uh, <clears throat> conducting treatment trials and, and neuroimaging to try to help these patients with persistent symptoms. So that was the beginning. Yes, well, I can certainly relate to that experience myself, and I know many of our listeners can. And I just want to say we love having people with curious minds uh, being part of the solution here. So I'm glad you pointed that out, too. So when did you make the connection between mental health and Lyme disease? Well, it was quite early on because Holly Murray, the mother in old Lyme, Connecticut, who first reported cases of Lyme arthritis in children in, in her neighborhood to the public health authorities in Connecticut. She actually called me up and she called my wife up, who's also a psychiatrist, Jennifer right. Williams, And uh, she said, you guys should study the psychiatric aspects of this illness. And we asked why. And she said, well, because it can cause, I believe it can cause psychiatric problems. And we asked her, why do you think that? And she said, because I'm seeing it in, in my family and I'm seeing it in my neighbors who have had Lyme disease. And why don't you come out and interview some of my neighbors? And uh, so she gave us her living room and my wife and I went out there to interview her neighbors. Uh, and at the end, we thought, yes, they have anxiety. Yes, they have depression. But how do we know this has anything to do with the fact that they also have Lyme? And so that led us to uh, design a survey, a 13-page survey. And my boss at the time, uh, who was a very experienced uh, researcher, said, there's no way people are going to fill out a 13-page survey. <laughs> And he was wrong. Um, and people not only filled out the survey, the whole 13 pages, but they also wrote things on the back of the page wow. telling us their story. So there was a profound need and urgency to it among the patients to get their stories out and to share some of the miserable experiences uh, that they had. And, and Absolutely. I, knew, I think yeah, because, patients are so grateful for anyone doing research that they are really willing to step up and participate. That's right. And it's it's a, a generous act on their part, but it's also reflects the fact that they're not being listened to by their by their own physicians. Definitely. Now, some patients experience a lot of inflammation, such as arthritis, meningitis, encephalitis, and carditis. Why is there so much itis in Lyme patients? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the Borrelia burgdorferi spirochete uh, has outer surface proteins, some of which are highly inflammation-inducing, um, far greater than what's found, let's say, for example, on E. coli. And as a result, you get inflammatory problems on the skin, in the joints, in the meninges, meningitis. Um, so there's lots of itis in Lyme disease. And can you describe some of the neuropsychiatric symptoms that you do see in patients? Sure. So early on, even in the first, let's say, month of infection, uh, people might experience cognitive problems. And typically, they might not be able to find the word to say what they want to say. And they end up saying a different word. Uh, so instead of saying, um, I'm going to... I'll put the cereal in the cupboard, they'll say, I'm going to put the cereal in the refrigerator. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, they also might have short-term memory issues. So they might forget what they did in the morning or, or what they did the night before. Uh, they might have problems of geographic disorientation where they are driving home and then all of a sudden they everything looks strange to them and they don't know where they are even though they're in their own neighborhood. Um, and that can that's usually fleeting. Um, but these are very odd and troubling symptoms that patients have, and sometimes, and oftentimes, they describe it as a brain fog. And when I think of brain fog, 
I think of slowed processing speed, meaning their brain is not working uh, at the same speed as it used to, so that uh, information is coming in slowly and and their brain is not processing it fast enough. So they're missing things in conversations uh, and they feel like they're in another world or they're, or they're uh, depersonalized or, or different in some way, dissociated in some way. Um, so those are the cognitive symptoms. And early on, they might feel uh, they might get some depressive symptoms, but not so much. It's usually the cognitive symptoms that are more common early on. Uh, and then later in the course of illness, they can, uh, if the illness continues and they have problems with uh, pain and uh, they have to stay home because uh, they're so sick they can't work and they're profoundly fatigued, uh, they have to, they find themselves sleeping sometimes 10 hours, 12 hours. And they wake up and they're not rested, and then they have to then they have to sleep during the day. Um, it's quite uh, discouraging for them. It's discouraging for their family, and obviously, if they have a job, it's, discour it's discouraging for their employer. Um, so it creates a lot of interpersonal and psychosocial stressors. Um, mm -hmm. So certainly, the psychiatric can be partly um, psychological, uh, meaning that the stressors can just weigh very heavily on you, uh, but it can also be. Uh, that the brain is having a subtle encephalitis where there's inflammation going on in the brain. And sometimes when that happens, people might start getting a little bit paranoid. Uh, they might find that um, <clears throat> sometimes rarely they might get manic uh, or rarely they might uh, become so paranoid that people start to wonder whether that person might have a serious psychotic disorder. Right. Now, I, I can totally relate to what you're talking about, because I remember when my symptoms first started, uh, you know, it was scary and it was really confusing. And, you know, I'd have a hard time coming up with the word for hummingbird. I could say, you know, that really small bird with the fast wings, but I couldn't come up with the word. And it was really scary to live in a body witnessing my brain not communicating properly. Um, so I can relate to that. And I'm just curious, are there red flags that patients and their families might notice um, that indicates their symptoms might be due to a tick-borne illness? Um, that's that's certainly a very important question. When when you think of tick-borne illness, let's just focus on Lyme disease since that's the most common one. Mm -hmm. um, Lyme disease is typically associated with problems with painful joints, painful muscles, fatigue, um, obviously, if there's a rash that's unusual or or an expanding rash, that would be very classic. Um, so if the individual starts to experience a combination of cognitive and physical symptoms, uh, then you have to wonder, <clears throat> is there some kind of an underlying medical problem? And, and there's a variety of medical problems that can cause physical problems along with neuropsychiatric ones. Um, but when you have migrating joint pain, that's more typical of uh, Lyme disease, for example. Um, and that's unusual for other diseases. If you have neuropathic symptoms, such as the numbness and tingling, uh, or the shooting pains, uh, or stabbing pains, or burning pains, uh, those are unusual. And you don't see mm -hmm. those with pure psychiatric conditions, unless you're having a panic attack where you might, because you have shortness of breath and you're, or you're breathing really fast, you might experience some tingling. But the but the burning and, and the shooting and stabbing pains is you don't usually see with a psychiatric illness. And then what percentage of people with Lyme disease experience neuropsychiatric symptoms? 
It depends on what stage of illness. So early on, um, it's probably pretty low, probably around 10%. Um, once you get to the chronic phase where people are experiencing persistent symptoms or relapsing symptoms, and they've been through a variety of treatments, uh, it's much more common. So, so about 40 to 45% of patients who come to see us in our second opinion clinic um, meet criteria for treatable depression or treatable anxiety. And then do we know the cause or causes of these symptoms? I know you mentioned encephalitis can contribute to paranoia. Um, do we know what causes these uh, these symptoms? We don't know exactly, but there are a variety of mechanisms that uh, have been identified as um, likely contributing to the persistent symptoms. So one of those is persistent infection. Uh, and if there is persistent infection, obviously that needs to be treated. Um, because the infection itself could be triggering an ongoing inflammation. Um, a second cause would be, let's say, autoimmune mechanisms where the immune system correctly targets the Borrelia spirochete and tries to um, get rid of that spirochete. But sometimes the antibodies that form against the spirochete mistakenly target human tissue. Uh, and mm -hmm. it could be the brain, it could be the nerves, peripheral nerves. And so the person starts experiencing peripheral nerve pain or, or uh, central nervous system symptoms, and that might be due to the autoimmune problems. Um, inflammation itself, peripherally, so inflammation, in, in, let's say, not in the brain, but elsewhere in the body, you get cytokines that are circulating. And if cytokines are circulating, some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier, especially if it's inflamed. And that in itself can lead to a whole range of neuropsychiatric problems as a result of uh, the cytokine activation uh, in the brain. So we know there's been a bunch of brain imaging studies, and we did some of them, and, and uh, John Alcott's group at, at Hopkins did some as well. When we were studying what was going on with these patients who had Lyme encephalopathy, uh, we did a really interesting study. It was, it was a study where we were looking to see if we take patients with persistent Lyme symptoms, and, and, and objective cognitive problems, meaning that you can actually document it on the neuropsychological tests. And if we do MRI imaging, and if we do blood flow imaging and brain metabolism imaging, uh, and then we give them a, an aggressive treatment with, with uh, IV ceftriaxone. And in those, in those days, we didn't know whether a longer course of treatment would be better than a shorter course. So we actually gave them 10 weeks of IV ceftriaxone compared to placebo. And what we learned in that study was that uh, the patients with Lyme disease as compared to healthy people, and they were age and gender matched, so they were comparable to Lyme patients. Um, the Lyme patients tended to have areas of decreased metabolism where the brain wasn't functioning well. It wasn't taking up the glucose the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. uh, and also had comparable areas of decreased blood flow. So it was unusual. And I remember when my colleague um, was first looking at the results and he, he was a neuroimaging expert, he was, he was stunned because he said, wow, these are really objective findings in these patients with persistent cognitive problems. Mm -hmm. And that was really important because Anybody who's had Lyme disease or another tick-borne illness knows that uh, 
oftentimes they get disbelieved. Oftentimes they're told that it's um, something else, or they're told that they're, or that it's assumed that maybe they're making up or exaggerating. But once you actually show uh, that actually there's brain imaging findings that are objective, that, that certainly gives confirmation uh, to their complaints. And the Johns Hopkins group showed that there was um, microglial activation uh, in the brain of the patients they studied. And that means microglial activation refers to inflammation. So they were able to find markers of inflammation in the central nervous system of, of the patients they studied. Um, so we know that inflammation is involved. We know that um, we know that when cytokines cross the blood-brain barrier, they can cause problems. So all those can can, can contribute to the neuropsychiatric issues. Definitely. Now, I did read your uh, research that you were doing in collaboration with Dr. Benrose from Copenhagen, and I was really shocked to see the findings. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that research? So Michael Benrose is one of the world's best mental health epidemiologists. And I met him when I was at a conference on pans and pandas. Okay. And that refers to uh, patients or children, primarily in adolescents, who develop neuropsychiatric disorders after a strep infection. So that's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders after strep pandas. And he was giving a report about his findings from a study done in the popula the entire population of Denmark uh, to, to see what was the frequency of psychiatric disorders uh, after strep infection. And I was thrilled to hear that talk, primarily because I thought, wow, I should try to get this guy to do the same study looking at what happens after Lyme disease. So I cornered him during the coffee hour, and he, I said to him, if I can get a grant for you to do this study, would you do it with me? Uh, and he said, yes. So we worked together over the next month, designed a study, and because he's an expert in this, he really designed the study, and I just gave him some guidance on, on Lyme disease. And so we ended up, or he ended up looking at the entire population of Denmark, which is about 8 million people over the course of 22 years, because the, in the Danish registry, the medical registry, they have medical information on everybody in the population over a 22-year period. So he was able to probe that database to see what happens when someone goes into the hospital or they see an outpatient doctor in the hospital setting or they go to the ER and they get diagnosed with Lyme disease. How many of those patients go on to develop depression afterwards or have suicidal behaviors or actually commit suicide? And because he has the data, the data over a 22-year period, he can follow people up over a very long period of time. <clears throat> and because he's using, using the entire population of Denmark, there's no bias. He's not excluding right. people. He's including everybody. And one of the problems with the old studies, the former studies, which including the ones that I've done, is that they're all biased. You know, this percentage of people have anxiety or depression, but they're coming to, to a research center or they're coming to a psychiatrist's office. So, mm -hmm. you know, I thought, how do I, have I really proven that psychiatric problems are a part of this uh, disorder or this infection? And I, I thought I really hadn't, but the, the closest I could get would be this, this uh, epidemiologic study. So he did the study and he compared the Lyme patients to everyone else, those who hadn't been diagnosed with Lyme disease in the hospital setting. 
And what we found was that uh, the rate of mental disorders was in fact increased in the patients with hospitalization for Lyme disease or a hospital diagnosis of Lyme disease. And sadly, uh, suicidal suicide was increased 75% wow. uh, in that group and suicidal behaviors was increased twofold or 200%. So that was obviously very troubling and disturbing, but it was important because it highlighted that um, mental disorders and, 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 and suicide is indeed a risk among patients uh, who have had a serious case. Now, I say a serious case because this, this, this registry only records people who were diagnosed in the setting either of an outpatient hospital clinic or ER setting or inpatient. So people who might have seen their primary care doctor and because of a rash and never gone to the hospital weren't included in this. They would right. have actually. Wow, they those would, are shocking would. results, but Aren't I think they? it really speaks yeah. to the importance of diagnosing and treating people. <laughs> it does, it does. And, you know, I see, I hear these terrible stories of people, people and I've seen patients, of course, who are so profoundly depressed and they, they need a lot of support. And uh, one thing the patients need to know is that they can get better. And I, that's, I've been working in this area for such a long time. I've seen some extremely sick patients, uh, get tremendously better and 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 be able to live happy and 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 full lives it doesn't mean that they're 100 without any symptoms but um most of them are like 90 percent. so that's that's very encouraging absolutely um, now what kind of approaches uh should physicians take when their patients with lyme are showing neuropsychiatric symptoms well, the physicians should do a very careful um, screen to see uh, does the person have depression, uh, and then if they do have depression, is there indication of any suicidal thoughts or wish to be dead, or uh, have they made any uh, have they had any thoughts about how they might kill themselves, um, or actually made any plans to do that, uh, or any or any behaviors to do that. So there's, there's uh, two very easy instruments that they can avail themselves of that are free and online. One is the PHQ-9, which <clears throat> is a measure of depression. And at the end of it, you get a score and it tells you whether the person is moderately depressed or severely depressed or only mildly depressed. And anybody who's moderately depressed or more, you know, you want to make sure that they get into some kind of treatment and be evaluated by a mental health professional. That's number one. And then the other instrument that's really helpful is the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. And I'm not saying that because I come from Columbia. I'm saying that because it's used throughout the world and by lots of primary care professionals uh, in the United States in particular. Uh, and it's very simple. It's just like six questions and you can download it onto your phone and I carry it around on my phone. And it just tells you what questions do you ask the person. And uh, if the person scores in the high risk range, you want to make sure that they get to see a provider immediately. Um, so it's really extremely helpful. Great. Well, we'll be sure to include those links in our show notes as well. Now, if physicians uh, wanted to learn more about uh, diagnosis and treating Lyme disease, is there specific training that focuses on the neuropsychiatric manifestations of Lyme? Unfortunately, there really isn't at this point. Um, we're in the process of, of trying to 
assess which are optimal treatments for these patients. But at this point, it's it's really based on each psychiatrist's experience. Sometimes patients come to me and or call me up and say, uh, or a family member calls me up and says, uh, my son is very ill and he's and he has Lyme disease and he's extremely depressed and I want I want him to see a Lyme literate uh, psychiatrist. And my response to them is, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you're not going to be able to find a Lyme literate psychiatrist because there aren't that many. That's number one. But number two, if a person has significant depression or anxiety or or, or uh, psychotic symptoms, you want to make sure that they see a good psychiatrist. They don't mm-hmm. have to be knowledgeable about Lyme disease. They have to be a good psychiatrist who can treat appropriately with the right psychiatric medications because often the psychiatric medications can be extremely helpful even if a person does have uh, underlying infection. Now, if the in- person doesn't get better um, and they're seeing a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist has done you know, a really good job and given the best treatments she knows about, uh, then uh, that psychiatrist will think, well, maybe there's something medical going on. And oftentimes it's a, me- or a psychologist, it's a- oftentimes it's the mental health professional who says, this isn't right. There's something different about this syndrome. This person has light sensitivity and sound sensitivity. And I don't see that in most of my patients. This person has cognitive problems and this person is only 30 years old or 20 years old. This shouldn't be happening. Uh, and so then they bring in the neuropsychologist, or then they bring in the medical people to try to help figure this out. So it's really important to take advantage of the mental health professionals out there, and they don't have to be Lyme literate. Obviously, it's nice if they are, because they know they know the whole uh, political um, worlds that people with Lyme disease live in, and that can be helpful, because another thing that happens with Lyme disease, as I'm sure anybody who's had chronic symptoms knows, is an experience of invalidation. And when you are invalidated, it's traumatic because it especially, especially, yeah, especially when you're invalidated by a doctor who you know and love. So your primary care doctor is taking care of you all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden it says, look, I don't know what to do for you. Uh, and that's actually not bad. That's not a bad response. I don't know what to do for you. But when they say, I can't help you, you have to go somewhere else. That's not very helpful at all. Um yeah, I'm glad you said that. I remember it took me about 30 specialists to get to, to till somebody finally said, you know, Sarah, sometimes we just don't know. And I thought, why didn't everybody else say that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Doctors, and I say this to the medical, I give examples, you know, to the medical students and and I advise them, you know, the best thing you can do is say you don't know if you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing do. wrong with that answer. I mean, people would rather hear that, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the COVID pandemic um, has alerted the entire world to the problem of infectious disease and the problem of the sequelae after a serious infection. Um, so long COVID is something that's all over the media right now. And that and ME-CFS, that's the chronic fatigue syndrome, ME-CFS, myalgic encephalitis, um, Chronic fatigue syndrome has also gotten um, a boost in in recognition because it's 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 recognized that the patients, many patients with long COVID, would also meet criteria for MECFS. So that actually has been really helpful to patients with post-infectious or peri-infectious problems. Because let's say, like with long COVID, we don't know if people have persistent virus or not. 
uh, but we do know what their symptom profile is. And let's see if we can help patients using a variety of different treatment approaches that might address their symptoms. So that's happening right now with long COVID. Um, it's happening. Yeah, it's quite with, remarkable, the similar mechanisms and symptoms and, you know, the way that it's impairing people's limbic system who are stuck in fight or flight like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's that's a horrific feeling, that fight or flight feeling. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. Now, can you share some success stories with us about patients who have recovered with appropriate treatment? Uh, sure. So one patient I recall came to see me when she was uh, with her mom. Uh, she was 14 years old, and she had been in a psychiatric facility uh, because of recurrent uh, psychotic symptoms. And she was... Um, she was, let's say, for an example, would be she was walking along the beach and uh, she saw dolphins jumping out of out of the ocean, and that, there are no d dolphins in that particular area. So, um, and she would become paranoid and she would have uh, hallucinations. Um, so she came to see me, and um, she and her mother were very close, and 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 her mother clearly cared a lot about her, and uh, so I ordered standard Lyme tests and some some at that time is on newer Lyme tests like the Lyme C6 peptide ELISA and I ordered a brain spec scan because in those days I was I was impressed by what we could learn from brain spec imaging and uh, we ordered neuropsychological testing as well or I ordered that um, and she did come back positive on the Lyme C6 peptide ELISA and she did have abnormal neuropsychological findings typical of what we see with our Lyme patients and the SPECT imaging did show areas of decreased, patchy areas of decreased blood flow. So I called a pediatric neurologist I knew and uh, and said, would you be willing to evaluate her and perhaps treat her with intravenous ceftriaxone if you think that's appropriate? He said he would. Uh, and the spinal tap came back negative, uh, but he was willing to try treatment anyway because he was... It was he realized that this was an unusual presentation, and she did have that positive C6 test, and she got dramatically better. And uh, she, all, she was able, over the course of six months, to come off of the heavy-duty psychiatric medications she was on, uh, and she was able to go on and get awards and statewide awards in her academics and in, in uh, where she lived, and went on to graduate school, and she she's doing very well. So that's that was you know very yeah that's wonderful thank you for sharing that yeah that was very gratifying absolutely now I want to just shift gears a little bit towards research and I just want to start with is it is it true that the uh, neuropsychiatric manifestations of Lyme were excluded from the CDC surveillance case definition and were therefore often overlooked in terms of research. Uh, yes, for sure. And that's definitely true. So the case definition for Lyme disease was set in the early 90s. And that was before any of the um, neuropsychiatric manifestations were widely recognized. Um, and even 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 if they had been known, and I, I suspect they would not have been included because the epidemiologic surveillance criteria were focusing on things that they could measure or see. So if the 
joint is swollen. That's something they can see if the rash is expanding in size greater than uh, two inches, uh, five inches, then that's five centimeters or two inches. They could see that if there's meningitis, meaning inflammation, uh, in the meninges, they could do a spinal tap and see that the white blood cell count is high and the protein is elevated or that the antibodies are there. So they wanted to be able to have very objective markers to uh, secure the definition. They clearly stated from the very beginning that clinicians should not be using this as the sole criteria for diagnosis. But nevertheless, clinicians started to use that as the sole di criteria for diagnosis. Diagnosis, And that was harmful to patients because people started being told, oh no, you don't have Lyme disease because you don't meet the epidemiologic case definition. And that's not at all what the case definition was meant for. Right. So, but yes, yes, the answer to your question was yes, the neuropsychiatric features were not in it and they're not in it now. And um, it's unfortunate because that means we're missing cases. Yeah, it might be a good time to update the case study. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I saw that in one of your presentations. So thanks for giving that historical context. I think that's helpful. Um, can you tell us about the clinical trials network? Sure, this is really exciting news, and I hope people are, are just as excited as I am. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun for me. Uh, the Cohen Foundation, the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation, uh, provided us with a grant um, to establish a clinical trials network. And the idea behind the clinical trials network is that, number one, there are very few treatment studies of Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. Number two, a lot of people might like to do clinical trials, but they don't know how to do it, um, or they don't know how to do it well. Um, and number three, uh, we at Columbia have a lot of experience doing clinical trials. I've done a lot of them in the course of my life in anxiety disorders, as well as in tick-borne diseases. Um, and my colleagues at Columbia have as well. So we, we became a coordinating center for the conduct of clinical trials for people, investigators around the country who might be interested in conducting trials at their own institution. So for example, our first um, colleagues on this in this adventure uh, include John Alcott at Johns Hopkins uh, and Roberta DiBiase, who's a the chief of pediatric infectious disease at Children's National Hospital in DC. So the three of us have been meeting uh, with others uh, in our com respective communities uh, every two weeks to discuss clinical trials and design of clinical trials and how we can get more people involved. And so at this point, uh, Dr. Alcott at Hopkins is doing a tetracycline study, three months of tetracycline versus placebo. We are launching a vagus nerve stimulation study with the idea that that the vagus nerve is this fascinating nerve. It's the longest cranial mm -hmm. nerve. In the, it's amazing. It's it's a truly. It's, it's totally <laughs> fascinating. It's. I love that I mean, you're doing this research. It really is exciting. <laughs> it is. It is. I remember. Actually, I've been interested in the vagus nerve stimulation uh, since 2012 because I saw that there was a company in Europe that had, had gotten approval for ep treating epilepsy with it. So I contacted them. They came to visit me and they came to visit a group at Harvard uh, to try to get their device uh, tested in the US, uh, but they ended up not doing it because of this, the intense uh, malpractice coverage, which was gonna be too much for them. So so unfortunately it got delayed, but 
But now um, we're able to collaborate with, uh, or not collaborate, we're able to get devices from a, a company in New York called Soterex that makes uh, outstanding uh, vagus nerve stimulation devices for research use. Um, and the interesting part is that we can stimulate the external branch of the vagus nerve, which is right on the outer portion of the ear um, and on the tragus as well. And if you stimulate that, it appears in some studies that that leads to a reduction in pain, a reduction in fatigue. Sometimes it can lead to a reduction in, in systemic inflammatory markers. So there was one nice study showing those benefits among patients with lupus. Um, and so as a result of that, the, uh, there's going to be a large clinical trial looking at trans called transauricular, meaning uh, on the ear, on the surface of the skin, vagus nerve stimulation for lupus. Um, we're going to be doing one for patients with persistent Lyme symptoms. Um, there's Prior to the external vagus nerve stimulation, there was a surgically implanted vagus nerve stimulator device that actually was shown to be effective in improving patients with severe depression, as well as for patients with refractory epilepsy. So here is a device that has anti-inflammatory effects, mm -hmm. has, you know, and it has um, cognition enhancing effects in some studies. It has pain reducing effects in some studies. And, and so it's, it's, it's extremely interesting. And I hope it indeed does help our Lyme patients because it would be a really nice thing. Yeah. For them. And it does seem like the cost is relatively inexpensive compared to some other um, yeah, things. That people absolutely. Know. Absolutely. Mm. Can't hurt, right? Right. And then, and then we're also, so as part of the clinical trials network work, we're also going to be starting a, a study looking at transcranial direct current stimulation, which sounds scary. I know. <laughs> I'm really very curious to know more about that. <laughs> so it's really just two electrode patches are placed on the forehead. Um, and for half an hour a day, you do two things. You connect those electrodes which you put on your forehead to a, this little device, which uh, provides the stimulation. And while you're doing that, you uh, use a neurocognitive enhancing brain program called Brain HQ. Uh, and the idea is that if you're doing the transcranial stimulation, as opposed to uh, not doing the, the stimulation, uh, the people who are doing the stimulation will have a greater improvement in cognition. So this is this is to help patients with brain fog. Phenomenal. That's great. Now, uh, we're based out of Canada, um, but we do have an international audience. So I'm wondering, are these studies that you're doing, are any of them open to patients outside of the United States? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, there's no no, in, there's nothing in uh, our proposal that, or our grant description that says uh, you can't participate if you're in another country. On the other hand, we want people to be able to come to Colombia and to mm -hmm. be able to come if they're not feeling well. Or, or mm -hmm. so, so it, we would discourage people who are coming from too far away to con consider the study, just because it's very expensive and uh, we wouldn't be able to monitor them the way we would like to. Right, definitely. There's another, um, study, there's another study we're just also putting together, which is intravenous ketamine, which also is interesting. Uh, ketamine is an is a, um, anesthetic, um, which has been shown 
um, to be helpful, very helpful, in rapidly uh, leading to a reduction in depression and and in a reduction of suicidal thoughts. So it's so it's actually been studied in the emergency room page setting where people come hmm. into the ER, you know, with severe suicidal thoughts. If you give them ketamine, oftentimes those suicidal thoughts can diminish rapidly. So that's a that's something that we're going to be assessing in our patients with Lyme disease to see if it helps improve depression, but also improve some of the other symptoms as well. Wow. I'm so excited about that. That's amazing. Now, as we wrap up, do you have any other closing comments? Hope. Hope hope is essential. You have to hold on to hope. And uh, I have seen so many reasons to hope, especially over the last 10 years. The academic community really is working much better together than they used to. Uh, and they're collaborating. And the, the example is this clinical trials network. We're going to be joining, or the UCSF uh, in San Francisco is going to be joining us as one of, as a node, um, and others will be joining us as well. Uh, and that all is going to lead to research advances in treatment. And, and um, so I think everybody in Canada and around the world should be excited by what uh, I think research will bring. That's great. And I do actually, I'm just looking at my notes. I have one last thing to ask you about. You had mentioned, I saw you present at the Live Lyme Summit. And um, I just was wondering, you had mentioned about the research that Dr. Sarah Mulkey is going to be doing. Can you, are you able to comment on that? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. So Dr. Mulkey is a pediatric neurologist and she's very interested in the question of what happens to uh, children if the mother was uh acquired Lyme disease during pregnancy. So she's going to, she's inviting uh, women in, to contact her who are pregnant and who get Lyme disease during their pregnancy. Obviously we want those patients to see their obstetrician and get treated properly for the Lyme disease, but she's doing brain, she's doing ultrasound brain studies, MRI studies, and she's following up children after birth as well. So it's really to see if there's an effect. And I think she might also be expanding that study to include uh, patients who had, let's say, acquired Lyme disease before, but certainly during pregnancy is is, is her goal. So uh, please check our website at uh, LymeCTN.org uh, to learn more about that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. We'll be sure to include all those links. And I really just want to say thank you so much. And I really love your message that hope is essential. And I believe that too. And that's why we do this podcast. Yeah, thank you for what you're doing. This is this has been great fun. I encourage you all to dive deeper into Dr. Fallon's research. And remember, hope is essential. Stay safe in the outdoors. Thank you.